Welcome to an episode of the podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York with a focus on behind the scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design and architecture. Jim Elkin is one of New York's legendary art collectors of 20th century fine art and design. In this interview, Jim takes us back to the beginning of his career and shares stories of discovery and adventure over the years with a great deal of warmth and humor. In the 1980s, he founded Lost City Arts to preserve decorative architectural artifacts that line the facades of buildings in Manhattan. He is widely recognized as the leading authority on the work of Harry Bertoia, who has become the subject of an exponentially growing interest in recent years. At the end of this fascinating interview, you will have the opportunity to enjoy sounds of some of Harry Bertoia's son ambient sculptures. Here we are in your beautiful gallery at the Design Center on Lexington Avenue. So was this your dream when you grew up? Was this what you wanted to do or was it more a coincidence? I wouldn't say that I could identify that I wanted a gallery, but I was fascinated by certain collectible things which were polished, semi-precious stones yeah. and baseball cards. Yeah. So I knew what it was like to desire objects at an early age. I see. I had a father who was entrepreneurial, starting his own business. I grew up believing that you could do your own thing. Yeah. Um, I had a mother who would throw us in the car and bring us to New York City and <laughs> take us to interesting restaurants and museums yeah. and the ballet. Yeah. So I was exposed to culture at an early age. I see. And I grew up in a modernist house. My parents both had a very discerning eye for design. Yeah. So I grew up with all the Herman Miller and Noel furniture. Hmm. And somehow in the recesses of my mind, uh, that came into play in my career. I see. Quite late. So it, it was in your DNA then, to some extent. You seem no, to no say... No doubt. No doubt. No oh. doubt. And uh, what really launched me in the process of opening a gallery was uh, an event that took place annually around the square in Madison, Wisconsin, where I was going to school. I see. University of Wisconsin. And they would invite 400 artists from around the Midwest, and it was a vetted um, choice of who would show there. Yeah. And I would go there for the four days, not having any money to spend on art. Yeah. But I knew by the fourth day, if what I was interested in was still around, I would have an opportunity to make an offer. <laughs> so I knew I wanted a gallery. Hmm. A lot of the art I had seen in Madison was uh, the art of students going to the different schools in the Midwest. Yeah. And I thought to myself, these people will never be discovered. How interesting it would be to travel the United States visit artists at different universities, and bring that art to New York. Hmm. I was going to call it the Gallery of the Unknown Artist. <laughs> That's a great idea. Then I noticed um, that the buildings of New York around this time, this was now in the mid-70s, actually, yeah. uh, pull forward to 1981 or two. I noticed that the tops of buildings were being denuded of their design, of their ornamentation. Mm. And you could see uh, the scale and materials and patina of these cornices uh, fascinated me. Yeah. 
And it was cheaper for landlords to take it off the building than to better affix it to the building. I see. That was all part of Local Law 10, which unfortunately was created because a student from Columbia University was killed by falling stonework oh. from a building. Wow. So I saw all these wonderful things being taken off of buildings. And I thought, that interests me too. I'm going to start a gallery called Lost City Arts. <laughs> and I gave my business card out to all the managers of the different skyscrapers, yeah. from down on Wall Street to Times Square. And I um, gave my card out to all the de demolition companies who could care less about what they were taking down. Yeah. And I started getting phone calls. Meet me at the top of the Studebaker building. I have 50 lion's heads in copper <laughs> from 1907. Yeah. Where do you want them delivered? Wow. And so um, I had to get a supplemental space to start housing all these newfound treasures. Yeah. And uh, it just sort of uh, built up. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found it was fascinating. And I got uh, written up in the... New York uh, Post yeah. for my collection. My girlfriend was a journalist for the New York Post, and she said, you have enough interesting things here to be written up. Yeah. So I invited someone to come up to my apartment on Jane Street, which was filled with interesting things, and okay. to come to my basement space on West 10th Street. And sure enough, they wrote about me. Mm -hmm. And with that, more articles were written and more attention was given to Lost City Arts. Yeah. And I got the wildest phone calls. <laughs> I got a call from the guy doing demolition work for the Barbizon Plaza Hotel, which was for women only. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump had just bought it. That's right. These, uh, each floor had a set of uh, Art Deco uh, cast aluminum panels that mm -hmm. were heroically proportioned. Yeah. You know, five feet high, three foot deep, yeah. in deep relief. And uh, it looked as though Brock had uh, designed them. I see. They were masterpieces, and there were 75 of them. Oh, my goodness. So I got the one up on Trump here because he replaced those panels with gold panels. Very Trumpian thing to do. Yeah. And I started selling them for $500 a piece. <laughs> which seemed great at the time because I paid $75 a piece. Yeah. And then I noticed that all these dealers were coming in and buying them from me, uh -huh. as many as they could get their hands on. And then I visited one of them in their store and I saw the one panel for $15,000. And I thought it was time to get smart and <laughs> change my pricing. Yeah. So uh, things like that just kept happening. I see. Got a phone call from a city engineer was doing some excavation on Duane and Reed Streets on Broadway. Yeah. They were going to put a parking lot in. And he uh, uh, revealed a wall, a terracotta wall, that was all uh, Neptunes and seahorses, trident spears. Hmm. And uh, I did some homework, and I determined that it was the site of what was to be the first underground subway. Wow. It was being built by um, Alfred Beach, mm -hmm. 
who owned the um, Scientific American magazine. And he determined that from his office, uh, which was at Broadway and Duane Street, that the clamor of horses and w walking outside and stepping in horse uh, poop yeah. wasn't for him. Mm -hmm. He happened to be the inventor of the pneumatic tube system, which would drive mail through a building uh -huh. by creating a vacuum. Yeah, yeah. He thought the same principles could be directed to uh, making an underground subway. Oh. But he knew that if he announced his intentions, that Boss Tweed, who was in charge of Tammany Hall and the mayor of New York, would graft from the project and make it uh, impossible to come to fruition. Mm -hmm. So he covertly at night dug this 300-yard long oh. tunnel, would take the dirt that was excavated away by horse cart. Yeah. And one day he announced to the New York Times and uh, all the New York newspapers that he had this wonderful idea for a pneumatic tube. Yeah. They were invited that night to come and experience it. Yeah. And within the waiting chamber, there'd be a grand piano, a big goldfish pond, <laughs> and a beautifully uh, ornamental terracotta studio. Wow. So it was a big success. All the newspapers covered it. It had to pass legislation in uh, the uh, New York State Assembly, mm -hmm. and that's when Boss Tweed stepped in. Mm -hmm. And uh, Alfred Beach could never uh, put together the votes he needed. It was quashed, mm. and it lay idle for 100 years until this city engineer went in to dig for his uh, parking lot. I got the phone call and salvaged all that I could. Wow. Uh, I gave a number of pieces to the New York Historical Society, to yeah. the Brooklyn Museum, and to the Museum of the City of New York. Hmm. What an incredible story. Yeah, well, that, that's like just tip of the iceberg. <laughs> Excavating the pyramids here. Yeah, that's yeah, it was, it was fascinating. I went from uh, West 10th Street, which became now a storage space, yeah. to Bleecker Street, 341 Bleecker Street. And that was uh, about 400 square feet. It was tiny. Yeah. And it was a historic building. And I was sure with the amount of terracotta I was bringing in there that it was going to take the whole building down with it. <laughs> You're talking about lion's heads in concrete yeah. that were individually 300 pounds. And maybe I bought 20 of them. Yeah. And that was kind of the business I found myself in. So I, I kept Bleecker Street, yeah. went to Lafayette Street, which wasn't even considered a part of Soho at the time. Mm -hmm. Opened my business there, and uh, it was an overnight success. Mm -hmm. And then urban, ar urban archaeology moved next door to me, mm -hmm. which was a very complementary business to what I mm -hmm. was doing. And then Secondhand Rose came in, yeah. and 280 Modern came in, Paula Rubenstein. So we had this Keith Herring's pop shop. Oh, yeah. Mm. Uh, we had this incredible. Uh, nucleus of stores. Hmm. And at that time, uh, celebrities weren't afraid to come out and be seen. Yeah. And it was the type of uh, group of stores that attracted all the architects, designers, film producers, film directors, uh, movie stars, writers, hmm. um, because it was such an eclectic 
wonderful grouping. Yeah. Um, and then it just sort of took on a life of its own. I see. Um, one story I can tell you is that uh, Meg Ryan became a good customer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought as long as I was paying the rent of New York City rents, I might as well open on weekends. And I had a, a guy named Mark, an Englishman, quite handsome. And Meg Ryan came in that day yeah. with her son. And I think uh, she was quite taken by uh, the objects around her. Yeah. And in the meantime, I was selling old typewriters, and her son got caught up in the ribbon and got ink all over his hands. <laughs> so Mark said, would you mind watching the store for a while? So she did, and she addressed the questions of customers as best she could. And her son came out of the bathroom all cleaned up. And uh, she just became a great customer. Yeah as were uh, Joel Silver, the director, Joel Schumacher, no. director, uh, Spike Lee, Toni Morrison, who just passed away, the Nobel laureate for yeah. literature. Uh, I asked her when she came in, said, so what do you do? She's out of curiosity. She was a very beautiful, striking woman. Yeah. And modestly, she said, I'm a writer. I said, well, let me deliver this phone uh, to your home in the, she said she lived in the police building. Mm -hmm. So when I got there, I could see she was someone important. And then I realized when I looked at the American Express receipt that it was Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. um, getting back to buying, I got a phone call from the chief of police of Ebbets Field, where the Brooklyn Dodgers played. Yeah. And he said, uh, I have some pieces from the old Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. Yeah. And of course, you know, I knew all about Ebbets Field because I was a baseball fan growing up. Yeah. And I went to his house in Queens, and he had two things for me. The first was the drum cover from, that said, New York Symphony Band. <laughs> and uh, that was a very famous band. They weren't well known for their uh, music, just more or less for their hijinks. Yeah. The second piece he had was a 12-foot-long banner that said, New York Dodgers uh, National League Champion. Yeah. And that would have flown from center field. And uh, I immediately bought them, and I called uh, a customer who was one of the top baseball collectors. And sadly, I sold the pieces mm -hmm. right away. Mm -hmm. So I, there are a number of things I've sold over the years that I, I miss dearly. Yeah. Those were two of them. That you really regret that you sold? Yeah, I mean, there's some joy to be taken when you place something interesting in a person's hands who appreciates it as you do. Yeah. And in this business, you have to have a rolling over of cash yeah. if you want to expand. Yeah. So basically, everything is for sale. So how do you balance that, uh, the, the art lover and the business uh, side of it? Because uh, my sense of you is that you're a little bit of a romantic. Yeah. I, th I think you fall in love with things. And then at some point you have to sell them. Uh, right. Or do you? Or do you keep them? Well, I mean, at, how, at this point <laughs> in my career, I can keep things. Yeah. Um, again, I've run out of space at home, though, so that's, 
It's an issue. So it's an ongoing discussion in your head uh, about um, what to do with things. Well, I like to live with things for a while. I'll bring them home and see how they resonate with me over time. Yeah. And then I'll bring them to the gallery. And uh, the best thing that can happen to me is an individual comes in and says, I like this particular piece. Can you inform me of its history? Mm -hmm. And I will. Mm -hmm. And they'll touch it and they'll examine it and they'll get a sense of the time period it's from and yeah. uh, and that's very satisfying when a person like that buys from me mm -hmm. I, I can pass on a piece so to speak yeah that seems to be in your nature too you're interested in in art in objects but you're also very interested in people yes well uh, I don't think I would be in this business if I didn't enjoy um, meeting new yeah. people, and uh, that is one of the gratifying aspects is that you, you meet people who share your interests. Yeah. So I had just opened my store on Lafayette Street, yeah. and there was one of the worst blizzards in the history of New York City. There was over two feet of snow, and I thought, it's going to be so boring to stay home today. Mm. I enjoyed going to my stores. Yeah. So I went to the store and opened up, and there were just two people who came by that day on skis. <laughs> and it was uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. and his friend. And I had these light up, they're called lenticulars of B-movies, three-dimensional boxes that lit from behind. And you would see uh, Richard Widmark uh, you know, smoking a camel cigarette or yeah. um, King Kong and Fay Ray. Yeah. Anyway, they came in. They opened. Uh, I opened the store for them. They bought their wedding present, mm. the lenticular. And I thought I have to stay open more often <laughs> when the weather's not good. <laughs> That's a great story. How do you choose the things you want to work with? Do you have any boundaries and say, okay, I won't go there, here is where I'm going to go? Or is it all about uh, the feeling that you get when you see something that you like? Well, I enjoy the period of the post-war mm -hmm. time when there was this exuberance in the world and a movement towards modernism. And there was something very life-affirming about this new architecture, mm -hmm. this new landscape in uh, furniture and art uh, that excited me. Of course, I told you I grew up with it, but now I'm at a point where I can sort of indulge in whatever I like. Mm -hmm. And I'm having a great time rediscovering artists who were prominent at one point in their careers and then not. Mm. And it's not for any good reason for a lot of them that their skills diminished or their technique or their aesthetic. It's just that a lot of art galleries now and museums are looking towards contemporary mm -hmm. to build their collections. Yeah. And my cutoff point is sort of 1980 to the present. Um, what I didn't mention earlier was that when I was into the salvaging of artifacts, uh, I could sell anything and everything. Yeah. I sold to investment bank firms like uh, Goldman Sachs, law firms like Sherman and Sterling and Herrick mm -hmm. Feinstein. Mm -hmm. 
And these were people who found it refreshing to have a piece of New York's history on their walls rather than traditional artwork. Yeah. But demolition sort of was on the wane, and interest in architectural artifacts was also diminishing, so I had to recreate myself. Yeah. So at that time, I determined I, I always got a kick out of pop culture. Yeah. And I wanted to change Lost City Arts to a store that dealt in uh, icons of the post-war period, mm. uh, like um, fiberglass uh, statues of bathing beauties, like Jackie Kennedy with her <laughs> arm on her head, uh, yeah. advertising that the motel you know, had a pool. Yeah. Or Jolly Green Giants from the Jolly Green Giant Vegetable Company. Yeah. Uh, princess telephones that were three feet long and lit up. These were all point of sale objects for stores. Yeah. And so I filled my store with fun things. Hmm. Light up clocks that would uh, display uh, the companies that they were meant to promote. Yeah. Gas pumps, Coca-Cola signs. Mm -hmm. It was a hoot. Hmm. I mean, it was just so much fun, and people responded in kind. Yeah. So I reinvented myself successfully. But then what happened was all these young collectors who were buying cool things for their home started to get married. Mm -hmm. And that disposable income now had to go to raising a family. Yeah. So I lost this whole group of customers, and uh, I'm thinking, what next? Yeah. So I thought, okay, modern design. I grew up with it. I'm comfortable with it. I love it. Yeah. And I always uh, delved in it in a smaller way. Now I was going to devote myself, go headlong into uh, modern design. Yeah. And you also have some Danish influence in your. Oh, then I got life. married. <laughs> yeah. And my wife, uh, who is uh, Danish, Coming back and forth, we had a long-distance relationship. Mm -hmm. Then she was uh, admitted to uh, Columbia University's School of uh, International Affairs. And she, before she left Aarhus, Denmark, mm -hmm. to visit me, she found a um, swan settee, famous, uh, famous design by Arne Jacobsen. And she somehow convinced the stewardesses of the plane to allow her to bring this <laughs> rather large um, box yeah. without any charge to New York. And I thought, this is the woman for me. Anyone <laughs> will bring me a swan settee from Denmark. And then you've come back, of course, to Denmark uh, every summer, I think you told me. Yeah. I, uh, we own a house in Denmark on yeah. a small island called Moon. It's an artist community. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can only, you know, stay in one place for so long, so uh, rather than uh, get bored, I started visiting all the artists and artisans of the island, Yeah. and now I show a number of their uh, work. You are also known for being an expert in Harry Bertoia, and we have a beautiful room here in, in your gallery uh, devoted to his pieces, more or less. Uh, could you tell me, how did you discover uh, Harry Bertoia? And, and, uh, how has it developed over the years? I, I went to an auction at Sotheby's and overheard these two men speaking about Harry Bertoia. And I had heard that name in relation to chairs that he designed. Yeah. 
but I didn't know that he was also a sculptor and a printmaker. Mm -hmm. And these two guys were all charged up about his work, and I went into the display, and I saw these very uh, fine rod sculptures that were set into brass bases in a grid pattern, a perfect grid pattern. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you would draw your hands to them and move them, they created this most wonderful sound mm -hmm. and motion. So I became fascinated with this work and uh, I started to hear what I wanted to hear, is his name being talked about more and more. And I decided to call his son, who was at best known to be mercurial. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought, well, I've always related to people easily. Mm -hmm. I'll give him a call in Valley, Pennsylvania, and see if I can't meet him. Mm -hmm. And we met, and I noticed all these wooden crates, and you could look through them, and there were these magnificent sculptures. And I said to him, Val, I said, I'm interested in representing your father's work mm -hmm. in New York. And he said, you know, I've tried that, and I haven't had a great experience. I said, well, get to know me better, and um, let's talk about it down the road. So I ended up buying those pieces that were in the crates. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing led to another. I felt that Bertoia's work was undervalued for what it was. I'd never seen anyone do anything like that before. Even though it's so simple, you'd think people naturally would have created similar sculptures, but they hadn't. Mm. And I just uh, took it upon myself to build my collection. And uh, I thought that I should be known for something in my lifetime. <laughs> and uh, so now I guess you could say I'm recognized for the work of Harry Bertoia. Yeah. They are incredible sculptures, and I, I've, when we met on several occasions at the Winter Antique Show and so on, I can see how people interact with the sculptures this, uh, that make sound so ambient, uh, and, they, and how people interact with them, and they play with them, and they move, and they give this sound. So he made a recording of the sculptures, isn't that correct? He made uh, seven recordings, mm -hmm. and uh, they're very hard to find. But Bertoia knew what sounds each sculpture would bring to a concert. The wonderful thing about Bertoia is that it spans all ages. Mm -hmm. I uh, will be doing a show, and a mother will come in with her son, you know, two or three-year-old, and I can see uh, the curiosity in their eyes, yeah. especially the two or three-year-old. Yeah. And I'll encourage them to wrap their hands around these rods, give a little twist, and let go. Yeah. And uh, the look of wonder is, is, <laughs> is there's nothing quite like it, yeah. the sense of discovery. Yeah. And I just hope that the takeaway from uh, those situations is that children learn that sound can be made from almost anything. Yes. And it can also be beautiful at the same time. Yeah. And that the importance of creativity in one's life is uh, very nurturing and something that all humans should experience. Yeah. 
It's, it's an uh, incredible experience the way it, it integrates all the senses in a Bertoia sculpture, I think. It's, it's uh, magical in many ways because you have the touch and the feel and you have the movement and you have yeah. the sound. And aesthetically, they are incredible. Yes, I, I would say that his work is often, more often than not, sublime. So Harry uh, Bertoia was using beryllium copper more than any other metal. Hmm? He found that it embodied all the properties um, that made to the success of what were called sonambients or uh, tonal sculptures. Mm -hmm. So the beryllium copper was extremely lively, and uh, the sounds it made when it would hit against another piece of beryllium copper were very clear. And uh, he used it and unfortunately uh, became ill and passed at the age of 63. Oh my goodness. Um, I met Ed Flanagan, who was his assistant for 20 years. Ed and I became friendly. Yeah. And uh, he thanked Harry often for taking him out of this realm of life in rural Pennsylvania, where at most he would have been a car mechanic. No. to helping Harry engineer these beautiful sculptures and bring him to a world of art yeah. uh, and the personalities in that world that he otherwise never would have met. Yeah. And uh, by and large, all those people who I spoke to who were friends or associates of uh, Harry Bertoia um, paint a picture of a very modest, Caring, benevolent uh, person who I think, even though he died at a young age, was on to the very meaning and essence of life. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it scared him. He knew he was dying. But he said, and I'll paraphrase it, when you hear the sound of trees moving in the wind, and see the motion of the branches, you'll think of me. Hmm. And that's written on a gravestone right outside of a uh, gong that people will play uh, in respect and honor of him when they visit his gravesite. Hmm. So he went from the Cass Technical School, yeah. which was the most uh, respected technical school in Detroit, and was given a scholarship to um, Cranbrook, mm. which was uh, being directed by Eliel Saarinen. Mm -hmm. And Harry became friendly with Eero Saarinen, the uh, Finnish family, the Saarinens who were responsible for many important buildings, such as the MIT Chapel, mm -hmm. the TWA yeah. building that's just been restored, yeah. JFK, um, and on and on. So he went to Cranbrook, and coincidentally, Charles and Ray Eames were students there at the yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, Aero Saarinen, as I mentioned, and Harry Bertoia's uh, 
to be wife, Brigitte. Yeah. So uh, Harry, uh, although not gregarious, uh, uh, had a good time uh, developing his skills in welding and creating jewelry and uh, struck up a, a very good friendship with uh, the Knowles, who happened to be there. Yeah. Florence Knoll, who unfortunately just passed away, and uh, the Eames. And they all knew that Harry was brilliant mm -hmm. and that he could engineer anything. He could build a bridge. He could design a chair. Uh, he could make the most beautiful uh, jewelry. Yeah. And so when they left Cranbrook, uh, Harry got a phone call from Charles and Ray Eames, come out to California and uh, design some prototype uh, chairs. Yeah. And he did. And Charles and Ray Eames took them to MoMA and they won the Best Design Award. And Harry wasn't credited for his participation. Hmm. And as upset as a guy like Bertoia could get, this tested him. Hmm. So he then got a phone call from uh, Hans and Fl Florence Knoll to come to uh, Bally, Pennsylvania. They would give him his own studio. And uh, from that studio, uh, he designed the famous Bertoia chairs, which was, they were all about welding metal one piece to another. And uh, his contract with them was uh, drawn up so that when he received $20,000 in royalties, yeah. he was free to do his own thing, mm -hmm. whether he wanted to stay with Noel Associates or not, whether he um, uh, would uh, do his own thing in his own studio. Well, that's what he opted to do, mm -hmm. do his own thing in his own studio. Yeah. The royalties from those chairs, uh, if they had accumulated since 1952, would have made him a millionaire many times over. Yeah. But that wasn't what he desired. He wanted to get out of the furniture business as quickly as possible and into the sculpture yeah. and monotype hmm. end of the art world. Hmm. And we're going to hear some, some of the Harry Bertoria sculptures at the end of this uh, interview. Yes. So when you look back at, at your, your career and, and, and the things that you like, do you see a pattern in the things that you, that you uh, like, that you, that you are drawn by? That's a great question because I always thought not. Mm -hmm. But then I'd have someone come into a store, having known my prior store, not knowing that I had moved. Yeah. And invariably they'd say, is this lost to the arts? <laughs> So there must be a common thread in the aesthetics yeah. of the different stores that I've had. Yeah. What could that be, do you think? I think there's a certain masculinity mm -hmm. to what I have. I like materials. Mm -hmm. I enjoy design. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. And uh, I think good design melds with good design. Mm -hmm. So I was just in Italy and I bought these 16th century uh, slate paintings of yeah. Jesus Christ and Mary. Yeah. Has nothing to do with what I do. <laughs> but I thought these are beautiful and to juxtapose something from the 60s yeah. in a show next to these uh, old art master 
art pieces could yeah. be interesting. I read an interview with you when you said that uh, um, you're looking for the human quality that makes them easy to live with and they are imbued with a certain magic. And I think that is very well put because there is something magical about every piece that we are looking at here. They are they're different in an interesting and compelling way. And uh, so I think that it's interesting with you because you're not a conformist. You are more like a... Um, you're looking for something that is uh, unusual and unusually innovative in a certain way. I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to pinpoint. But no, I think that's well said. Uh, I do believe that there is magic around us in our environment. Yeah. And that pieces I buy here are imbued with that magic uh, because they're inspired. Mm. They're just not something that was sketched and made. They're accomplished works of art. Yeah. And uh, I think my mother taught me this, that if I keep my eyes open, mm -hmm. I'll see beauty in many different forms. Mm. Perhaps it was my mother who developed my interest in architectural artifacts. Yeah because she would be driving us through the city and point at things way up. <laughs> and uh, I thank her for that role she played in my life. Mm. Well, you have a very, very high level. You have a great eye. And so, I mean, I, I, I'm impressed by the, the, the consistency of it. I mean, everything is beautiful. <laughs> there isn't anything that, you know, becomes common or ordinary or, you know, you've seen that before. Everything has its own unique character in a way, which I find very interesting. Well, one thing I tell students who are sometimes brought here uh, from design schools mm -hmm. is uh, to really look at something that you enjoy, close your eyes and reimagine it. Mm -hmm take inspiration from the color panels of this wall-hanging cabinet as your inspiration. Yeah. Go to the beach and find a rock that's been eaten away over the millennia yeah. to create holes uh, in that rock. And, and close your eyes and think of what sculpture could be created from that inspiration. Yeah. I have my top 10 things that I would love to have back. Yeah. And number one is um, a banner from old Coney Island. Yeah. And it was uh, a painting of the funny face from the funny place, Steeplechase Park, mm -hmm. which is part of Coney Island, mm -hmm. from the turn of the century. Yeah. And I called this canvas banner the Mona Lisa of carnival art, <laughs> because it's hard to tell if it's the figure, which sort of looks like the Mad Magazine figure. Yeah whether his smile, and it's a very broad smile like a Cheshire cat, yeah. is menacing or friendly. Uh -huh. It's something in between. <laughs> but it's, it was a masterpiece, and I miss that so much. And I sold it to a banker who yeah. will never part with it. <laughs> this is a guy who has four Ty Cobb, yeah. no, Honus Wagner baseball cards, which mm -hmm. are each worth over a million dollars. So I would love to get that piece from Coney Island back. 
Number two was a bronze uh, miniature, a maquette of a traffic tower. Mm-hmm. In the days when uh, everything was horse-drawn or Model T Fords. Yeah. And uh, this was a pitch from the company who wanted to make them for the city. Yeah. And what they were uh, were uh, 18-inch high replicas of these traffic stations. And the feet of the, the four feet were um, uh, dragon's feet. Mm-hmm. Dragon's feet. And uh, the ladder up uh, would be where the, um, where the policeman who would change uh, the traffic uh, light from green to red would stand. And uh, it was a very ornate, solid bronze piece. And uh, I had an architect client who was my best client. And he absolutely insisted that I part with this so he could give it to his movie director friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's a shame I don't have that. I had a piece of the Hindenburg. Oh, is that right? Yeah. When the Hindenburg blew up in New Jersey, um, a journalist who was on the scene early took a piece of the structure of the Hindenburg uh-huh. and made a stool out of it, uh-huh. a sitting stool. And uh, I sent it to um, the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, and they said, yes, it's um, it's right. It's a piece of uh, duralium mm-hmm. that the Germans uh, created uh, to serve as the metal for the uh, structure. Mm. And uh, I missed that piece. That was great. Mm. Um, it goes on and on. <laughs> so you wake up or in the middle of the night <laughs> thinking about these things that you... No, I let it go. But yeah. uh, in fact, coming here today, knowing that I was with you, it would be... Reminded me of those, uh, the canvas from Coney Island yeah. and uh, Joel Silver's um, traffic stand. Yeah. And I thought, I've got to approach these people and try to get those pieces <laughs> back. Well, I mean, you're in an industry where, or in a business where, where, where things really matter to people. I mean, when we were uh, uh, meeting, you know, all collectors of yours or clients of yours, and they talk about all these stories about this object that they, they, they think of you when they see this object in their home. And every object has a story. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I consider myself so lucky because the sense of discovery is there every day. Yeah. You don't know what that day is going to bring. Yeah. Um, there's, there are phone calls I get that are just marvelous, you know, just so exciting. It's, I tell you, it's much more exciting to find a piece than to buy a piece. <laughs> the problem with today's art market is that everybody has commoditized what they're selling. You know what a specific Damien Hirst painting should sell for. Mm-hmm. You know what a Warhol seriograph will sell for. Uh, there are no real surprises. It's just who's the last person carrying the ball who's probably going to lose out on this uh, craziness over contemporary art. Yeah. But uh, for me, uh, I think the greatest challenge is to rediscover a great talent that for numerous reasons just is off the charts. Maybe they died at a young age. Yeah. Maybe their gallerists uh, moved or passed away. Um, 
but there are vast numbers of artists whose work is sublime, yeah. who uh, ne need to be shown, yeah. especially while their families are still around. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that's my greatest challenge on a day-to-day -day basis, is mm. to bring back the artwork of those who have been forgotten. Aja Yunkers, who was very good friends with Rothko and Motherwell, and uh, quite a talent in his own right. I have a lot of his canvases up. Murray Hantman, who did a group of studies of uh, cir circles mm. with a beautiful color palette. Uh, and of course, uh, Bertoia yeah. is always figuring into that. Yeah. So where, where do you go for inspiration? I go to a place like the Noguchi Museum mm -hmm. in Long Island City. I find that incredibly um, fulfilling. Yeah. The forms, the materials. Mm. In fact, I just bought a Noguchi rudder table. Mm -hmm. So uh, museums uh, can be a source of inspiration. Yeah. So, so looking forward, uh, what do you think will be uh, the next trend in, in, uh, in your business? I mean, we've had mid-century design and, and art that's been dominating for many years. Do you think it's going to be 80s and the 90s now, or is that too, is that too simplistic? Well, I remember in the 60s saying to myself, nothing will ever define this decade from a design point of view. And I was too close to it. Mm -hmm. Now looking back, the 60s <laughs> was so visually oriented. Yeah. And uh, a total departure from anything that had ever been done before. Yeah. So sometimes you have to step back from uh, design and art a, a few decades yeah. before you can objectively see it. Yeah. So we talked about Harry Bertoia and um, in this beautiful gallery that you have here at the Design Center on Lexington Avenue, you have almost a room dedicated to Harry Bertoia. And uh, we're going to listen to some of his sculptures. This is Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. Thank you for listening and be sure to visit www.artinsidersnewyork.com to join the conversation and subscribe to the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode of the Art Insiders New York podcast, head over to iTunes, if you're not already there, to subscribe, rate and leave a review. This is very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC Copyright 2019.